welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Hello, and thank you for having me here today. My name is Dr. Andrew Witt. You can just call me Andy, and it's an honor to be here. Uh, I teach Old Testament courses at Tyndale University, and so if you have any burgeoning high school kids who are looking for a place to study, uh, I would love to talk to you about undergraduate education. (laughs) I've got to throw that in there. Well, today, uh, Vijay asked me to be here to be part of your current series, What on Earth Am I Reading?, and I've been keeping up, watching uh, previous sermons, and I'll say I'm delighted to hear and to see that you are willing to be challenged by hard uh, but necessary questions related to the Bible. In particular, he asked me to discuss with you how the ancient context of the Bible can help us to make sense of some of the strange passages that we might come across And let's not kid ourselves, especially in the area that I teach in the Old Testament, there are some pretty strange parts of the Bible. Um, Have any of you tried to read through the book of Leviticus lately? For those of us who have been in the church for a while, we know that Leviticus is the place that Bible reading plans go to if they want to die. (laughs) And if you don't know what I'm talking about, perhaps you might be getting there in the weeks ahead in your own Bible reading plans, and then you might know what I'm talking about. Uh, I had a professor in seminary. Uh, I was taking an Old Testament course with him, and we were going through the book of Leviticus, and uh, one of the students in the class wanted to ask him a question, and they said, um, you know, what can we get out of the book of Leviticus, right? What's there for us? And so in his best dad joke voice, <laughs> he says, we're supposed to get out of Leviticus as fast as possible. <laughs> um, but all jokes aside, right, one of the reasons uh, why the Old Testament and even some parts of the New Testament are difficult for us to connect with is because the social and the cultural setting of the Bible are entirely different than what most of us have ever encountered. And so this morning, uh, what I want to focus in on is an area of the Old Testament that I research and teach on quite often, uh, the book of Psalms. Now, the Psalms are a cherished portion of the Bible. Uh, We read uh, passages from the Psalms devotionally. We pray through the Psalms as part of our spiritual life. We include them in major functions like weddings and funerals. And we often use verses to put up in our houses, right? Uh, Little pictures or uh, little decorations uh, that remind us of this relationship that we have with God. But if you've spent any time in the Psalms, you might also remember how strange and difficult they can be from time to time. For example, Let's look uh, at a passage from Psalm 139, and we'll start about halfway through in verse 13. And so we read, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, 
when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as of yet there was none of them. Right? What a beautiful passage. Right? God weaving us together, already caring for us within our mother's womb. And so we keep reading, right? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. All right, we're just blown away, right? Overcome with God's understanding and God's knowledge. How are we able to even continue to be in the presence of such a mighty God? And how incredible would it be to hear his thoughts right, on whatever we are facing? So we have that kind of in mind, right? And now imagine yourself, you're in a prayer group. You know, someone has just prayed those things. Maybe they're reading through the psalm, right? Your eyes are closed. You're kind of nodding along. You're encouraged by these uplifting and these soothing words. Well, then they continue to read Psalm 139. And here's what it says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. And you're like, well, that took a turn, right? <laughs> uh, what are we supposed to do with that? Am I supposed to say amen uh, to the end of that prayer or what, right? Um, you know, what are we supposed to do? Um, and, and so in my classes that I teach at Tyndale, right, I teach this Book of Psalms class in every single semester. One of the questions that pops up, and it pops up often when I talk to people in the church as well, is, you know, what are we supposed to do with psalms like this or passages like this where, uh, where people are praying violence against one's enemies or even just expressing attitudes that people deem are unbefitting for followers of Jesus, right? Are we supposed to be in the prayer circle judging the psalmist beside us? Or perhaps is the psalmist the one who's teaching us how to pray, which we find quite difficult. And so the topic this morning we're going to look at is to see why the ancient context of the Bible is so important for understanding what it's trying to teach us. So how should we pray when we have enemies in mind? Right? How should we pray when we have enemies in mind? And so before we talk about prayer, perhaps we should pray ourselves, centering our hearts and our minds. And uh, so would you pray with me? That the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So what exactly are these psalms of violence? Yeah, you're likely familiar with some of them. The most infamous of these kinds of psalms is Psalm 137. And I'll just read the last couple of verses of that psalm. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. 
Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's pretty brutal, right? But we encounter these kind of prayers all over the place, right? It's not just in kind of select places that we find them. And so we can even just go to the very beginning of the book of Psalms and we have a, a bunch of them right in a row. So for example, and I'll talk through a couple of these quite fast. Uh, Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In Psalm 3, we read, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And we could go on and on and on. Right, so these kinds of ideas or these kinds of thoughts, they seem to be part and parcel of what the book of Psalms is about. And Christians, uh, as you might imagine, uh, perhaps yourself uh, might uh, think this as well, right? We're uncomfortable with prayers like these and we're not the only ones, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis, who uh, wrote on the Psalms in, in a really great book called The Reflections on the Psalms, um, his idea here probably matches what we're feeling. And so here's a quote from his book. At the outset, I felt sure and I feel sure still that we must not either try to explain them away or to yield for one moment to the idea that because it comes in the Bible, all this vindictive hatred must somehow be good and pious. We must face both facts squarely. The hatred is there, festering, gloating, undisguised. And also we should uh, be wicked if we in any way condoned or approved it or worse still, used it to justify similar passions in ourselves. Now, Lewis will go on to give a couple examples in his book, uh, and he refers to some of them as devilish, right? So right in his view, it's kind of demonic, right, in some ways. And I think in part, we, we find ourselves agreeing with C.S. Lewis because there are several passages in the New Testament that seem to teach us quite literally not to pray in that way. And so we have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Here's, here's what he teaches. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and, or <laughs> you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. We even have the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, a very wonderful chapter exploring the virtues of Christian love. Uh, Paul writes, bless, uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So with instructions like these, how then can we pray that God would bring about justice against our enemies? Right? Instead of hating them, are we, aren't we supposed to love them? Right? Instead of cursing them, aren't we supposed to bless them? And the unease we have with these passages um, 
from the Psalms, uh, especially when we look at them right side by side with uh, the teaching of Jesus and the Gospels and of Paul and his letters. Right? I don't think it's out of place. Right? On the surface, it really does seem like there's some contradictory things going on. So am I here today to ruin the book of Psalms for you? <laughs> Absolutely not. I love the book of Psalms. Um, so I'm not here to do that, uh, but I am here to tell you that there's more to it than this. And in fact, when we appreciate the larger ancient background to the book of Psalms and to the Gospels, well, we get to see that God has something profound to teach us, uh, not only about how to pray for one another, but also how we're supposed to take matters of injustice very seriously in the church. So how do we go about doing this, right? Uh, how do we know that there's something more to it? Well, to start, um, in the New Testament, we also find a bunch of curses that sound very similar to what we read about uh, in the book of Psalms. And they're not just kind of in the byway on the side of things. These are uh, characters like Jesus and Paul speaking these curses. And so uh, a couple of examples to see what I'm talking about here. Um, we have Jesus uh, speaking in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, he's uh, lamenting what's about to happen in Jerusalem. Right? He's predicting uh, that the city will fall in the near future. And so, uh, so he speaks this prophetic word, and he seems to be picking up on that language from Psalm 137 that we looked at earlier. And so here's what Jesus says. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Right? They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. Now the Apostle Paul, he's a bit more blunt and gets to the point a bit quicker in, uh, in this passage from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And so here's what uh, Paul says. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Now, you might be thinking, right, Paul seems to be doing the same thing as Jesus, where he's offering this prophetic word about something that's going to happen in the future. So maybe it's not a curse, you know, per se, but it, it, there's not a whole lot of difference between what Paul has said here, right, the Lord will repay him for what he has done, and just changing the word at the beginning, right, may the Lord repay him for what he has done. They're very similar. Now, another indication that we have uh, that there's more to the story is in the New Testament, we have a bunch of Psalms that are put kind of onto Jesus's lips uh, as he is going through different parts of his life. And, uh, and this especially happens during uh, the time of his passion, um, that week leading up to his death on the cross. And uh, one of uh, the Psalms that finds uh, a place there is Psalm 69. 
And, um, and we don't only find it there, but Psalm 69 is quoted uh, at a number of important points throughout Jesus' ministry. And uh, through these many uses, what we see is that uh, Jesus is the one who's envisioned as praying this psalm. Right? So this psalm, you know, when we encounter it, we're supposed to hear Jesus praying it. Now that might not sound like a big deal, um, but it turns into a big deal because uh, for Old Testament studies, when you're looking at these cursing psalms, Psalm 69 is like the prime example of a cursing psalm. And so, uh, so we get to verse 22, there's this really big section um, where we find a curse. And so, uh, so remember, right, the early church is envisioning Jesus praying these words. And there are passages that quote from here uh, as prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus's life. So read along with me uh, what is said here in Psalm 69. May their table before them become a trap and for their friends a snare. May their eyes grow dim from seeing and cause their hips to shake continually. Pour out upon them your indignation and may your burning anger overtake them. May their encampment become a desolation. In their tents may there not be an inhabitant. For you, those whom you struck down, they pursued. And they were recounting the pain of your wounded ones. Set punishment against their iniquity, that they may not come into your righteousness. May they be erased from the book of life, so that with the righteous they will not be recorded. Well, okay, what are we supposed to do with that one? Right? How can it be that Jesus would pray this psalm? Right? Can we really envision Jesus praying, pour out upon them your indignation, and may your burning anger overtake them? Right? If Jesus really does pray this psalm, then, then how can his teaching be true? How is it that Jesus can command us to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you while at the same time asking that those who are torturing and persecuting him be erased from the book of life? So we've got ourselves in a little bit of a pickle here, right? Um, but the amazing thing uh, about it is I think with a little bit of information about the ancient context here and, and how these kinds of prayers, these kinds of curses work, I think that'll open up a lot of possibilities for us uh, to better understand what exactly Jesus is doing here. So, uh, so I think we'll, we'll be able to see that Jesus can both pray a psalm like this and encourage us towards enemy love. But we have a bit of work to do to get there. So, uh, so what we're going to do is look at this ancient context of cursing psalms and especially how they fit into their Old Testament environment. So in the ancient world, you know, we find plenty of curses everywhere. Archaeology has uncovered tons of these. So we find them in ancient Egypt, we find them in ancient Mesopotamia, and we also find them in ancient Israel. Right? They're all over the place. Um, but what we might not realize is that all curses aren't the same we can split curses into a couple of different categories. Uh, one of the most basic distinctions is splitting it between uh, legitimate and illegitimate curses. Right? So legit legitimate and illegitimate. 
Um, but once we make that distinction, uh, in the legitimate category, we can have curses that are conditional and unconditional. So I'm going to unpack for you first what these conditional and unconditional curses are, and then we will move into that illegitimate category. So on the one hand, we have these conditional curses, and conditional curses in the ancient world often take place in very formal contexts. So if there's two nations that want to create a treaty with one another, these curses will be part of that treaty agreement. Or sometimes when a king will give his people a law code that they have to follow, we'll find these curses as part of the law code. And we find them in the Bible as well. And probably the most famous example of this is from the book of Deuteronomy. So Moses, he's giving his final teachings uh, to this new generation of Israelites before they enter the promised land. And kind of the whole middle part of the book of Deuteronomy is just laws after laws after laws. And until we get uh, to chapters uh, 27 and 28, uh, where we find these uh, things called blessings and curses. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 28, at the very beginning of the chapter, we first hear about the blessings that come along uh, with the covenant. And so here's what it says. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, I will give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. So Moses, he then goes on in the next like 10 or 15 verses here to list all these blessings that God promises his people if they are faithful right, to their covenant obligations. Right? These are things that they had agreed to do. And so he follows these blessings uh, with another list, right? a series of curses. And here's how he introduces those in verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am teaching you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And now this is followed by a pretty lengthy list of curses that we find there. But when we look at this uh, chapter and we look at what the people of Israel are agreeing to, this is kind of a self-imposed curse, right? They're willing to take on these blessings and these curses because they're conditioned upon whether or not they fulfill what they have promised to do right, in their relationship with God, right? So this is why we call it right, a conditional curse. And so in this context, the, uh, the curses, right, they seem to serve the purpose of motivators, Right? So, uh, so you have blessings and cursings that sit before you. Uh, so what are you going to do? Right? And right, the curses have the negative motivation, whereas the blessings have more of that positive right, encouragement. We also see uh, this kind of self-imposed curse uh, at a couple of places in the Old Testament. Um, one of the places that stands out is in the book of Job, where we see Job making a similar kind of self-curse. And sometimes this is called a, a self-imprecation. And what he's trying to do, right, things have fallen apart for him, and uh, everybody in society is now treating him very differently than they had before. And so he's trying to defend himself uh, before God and before his neighbors. 
So we read in Job chapter 30, part of this defense. So here's what Job says. If I've walked with falsehood or uh, my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown and may my crops be uprooted. If I've denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they have a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form both of us within our mothers? Right, so Job is trying to convince everyone around him right, that, that there's no possibility that he's done wrong by anyone in his community. And so on top of all of these horrible things that have happened to Job, that have kind of brought him to this point, he's willing to impose these self-curses upon himself right, in a way to just show how serious his claims are. Right? So, so if he thought things were bad for Job before, right, if he's lying here, it's, a, it's about to get a whole lot worse for him. Now in the middle of this, uh, this self-imposed curse that Job has, he also introduces us to the second kind of legitimate curse that we had talked about, the unconditional. Now in the ancient context, these unconditional curses, they often take place in more informal settings um, and they're often uttered by people who've been oppressed by someone, who've been falsely accused by someone in the community, or they're victims of some kind of crime like theft. And so when Job says, right, if I've denied justice to any of my servants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when I'm called to account? Right, so Job kind of envisions right, this situation where you know, he's the one in a place of power. Right? He's the judge in the community. And so if he doesn't hear the grievances of people, who will? Right? Who are the people left to, uh, to grieve to? Right? And, and this is where these curses are found to be legitimate. Right? When the oppressed, they have no other recourse for help, right? what are they to do? Right? The perpetrators, they might control the power. Or, uh, or someone, this, their crime cannot be found out. Right? So they're, in a way, they're not convictable for what they have done. And so in these situations, all the different structures in society that have been put in place to bring about justice, right, they've all failed these people. So whether it's the king, the judges, elders, or wise people at the gates of a town, or even the wider community, right, no one is capable of bringing them justice. Right? So they have to make this desperate plea to the Lord. Right? The Lord is the one that's left to bring about retribution and to prevent further harm. Right? So when we look at the context that way, the conversation, I think, begins to change a little bit, right? Even in the Psalms, right now, if, you know, especially if you're familiar with the Psalms, you might be able to think of dozens of different passages that could fit this kind of situation perfectly. 
Now, before you know, we stop talking about different kinds of curses, right, we need to uh, mention the illegitimate kind. So illegitimate curses are curses that are aimed at innocent people. Right? And the goal of these curses is that um, you know, this person is, might be seeking advantage over someone else. Right? And, and kind of the idea here is that these curses are a bit like magic. Right? If I speak this curse out into the world, right, the, the gods or whoever's in power right, will be able to make it happen, right? manifest it or something like that. Right? So, um, so scripture is very clear about these, these kinds of curses. Um, God does not hear them, right? He does not pay attention to them. On the other hand, right, we have a Psalm like Psalm 109, which says, uh, while they curse, may you bless, right? While they curse, may you bless, right? So God, right, he has the ability, right, to turn this cursing that the wicked have into blessings for the righteous, so we have these uh, legitimate, unconditional curses, and they're uttered by victims of oppression or people who have been falsely accused or have been uh, victims of crime, and they need God to intervene into a, a rather desperate situation, right? And uh, you know, the belief here, right, is that God knows the truth and uh, he knows about their suffering and he alone is left to judge on their behalf. Now they believe this because this is something that God has committed himself to do. And this is very important for understanding how these curses work. So in the book of Exodus, uh, we, we come to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, this is where Moses comes before the burning bush and God is revealing himself uh, to Moses and explaining kind of the situation that the people of Israel find themselves in. And so we read in uh, Exodus 3, verse 7, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and their outcry I have heard because of their taskmasters, for I know their pain. Right? God is um, not only identifying with this people who are suffering, right? he's acknowledging the pain that they are voicing, um, the oppression that they find themselves in, and he's willing to respond with help, right? With deliverance. And in fact, that's what we see happen, right? Uh, we go through these signs and wonders that happen in Egypt, right? These plagues that happen uh, to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt. God leads the Israelites through the Red Sea, brings them to Mount Sinai, enters into this covenant relationship with them, and in the midst of these, these covenant laws that we find in Exodus chapter 22, we come across this passage where, uh, where God um, wants to establish the same kind of accountability for people within Israel that he held uh, against the Egyptians. So there's some really clear connections here with Exodus 3 and Exodus 22. So let's read uh, verses 22 to 24 in, uh, in that chapter. You shall not oppress any widow or orphan. If you indeed oppress them, when they cry out to me, I will surely hear their outcry. Then my anger will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children orphans. Right? So the, so the very people right, that were being oppressed, right, these widows and orphans, 
That's what God's going to make your family look like, right? Widows and orphans. So it, it's, it's in the midst of this kind of uh, context where we see God upholding, right, a legitimate use of curses. And so where do we find examples of these legitimate curses? Well, the Psalms, right? It's chock full of uh, these kinds of things. And so what's fascinating about this whole thing, right, is that we have a bit of background now to look at the Psalms, and it begins to help us make sense of some of the violent language that we might find there. Right? And in almost in every case, when you come across one of these passages that, you know, it's a bit difficult to sometimes read, um, you'll find that the, the brutal language is connected back to what the people have been doing, right, in their oppression or in their accusations or in the crimes that they've committed. And so for an example here, um, remember back to Psalm 3 that I read earlier, right? Strike all my enemies on the jaw and break the teeth of the wicked, right? That's pretty brutal language, right, when you think about it. Uh, but note what the enemies of David were doing in Psalm 3. So if we go back to verse 2, it says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Right? God won't deliver David. Right? This imprecation uh, that David utters, right? strike them on the cheek, right? it matches the crime. Right? They're publicly arguing, right? promoting this idea that God is no longer going to support David. Right? God won't defend him anymore. We can, we can go out and get David. And it's, a, it's right for Absalom to try to take the throne away from David. So what David prays then right, is that, uh, that God would prevent further harm from happening. Right? When they get struck on the mouth, they're no longer going to be able to use that mouth for the kinds of derogatory statements they're saying about David. And again and again, uh, when you go through the Psalms and you find this, right, you, can, you can usually match these things up. So Psalm 7 kind of puts the principle uh, directly, right? So here's what it says. Uh, the trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. Right? So in God's providence, right, he's bringing about justice right, against those who do wrong. So with all of that background that we have before us, uh, with all these tools now we have at our disposal, uh, I think we're a bit better in our ability to navigate these prayers. And so uh, I want to finish our time together today by looking at four ways that this works. And so, you know, if, you know, if you're thinking I'm giving you license to just pray down <laughs> curses against everybody, I'm not doing that. Uh, we need to be cautious. Um, and, and here's four ways I think that can help navigate this a bit better. So the first thing uh, for us to consider is that when Jesus is instructing us to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who mistreat you, right? he's not intending that to be taken as a, a blanket statement to let people walk all over you, to do whatever they want to you. Uh, that's not what's happening. Right? He didn't intend this kind of thing to allow evil people, you know, whether they're outside the church or even in the church, um, to do whatever they want, right? And, and just as God has committed himself to rescue 
his people Israel from the Egyptian oppression. So God, he commits himself to rescue his people from themselves, from amongst themselves. And here, I think Psalm 10 speaks into this situation quite well. Uh, Psalm 10 reflects quite a bit on the thought patterns uh, that happen within uh, the wicked. So here's what it says uh, in Psalm 10. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm or the strength of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. Right, so Psalm 10 right, is a warning right, to the wicked who might be amongst us even. Right, the Lord's watching. He sees and he will hold you to account. And so when you think about it this way, um, this helps us, I think, to understand what Jesus is doing as he's praying Psalm 69 from the cross. Right, both uh, Pontius Pilate and Herod, if you go read about what's happening right before his crucifixion, right, they both think he's innocent. Right, so the people in power think he's innocent. Uh, but nevertheless, right, we have false accusers and mockers and persecutors coming along uh, to crucify Jesus. Right, so who's left to help him? Right? No one's stopping this from happening. And so God alone is there. And so Jesus is praying, as he should, right, for God to intervene and to help him. And now you might be thinking, well, God doesn't help him. <laughs> right? He dies. But he does help him. Right? He, he's raised up from the dead. Right? So God, uh, he comes in this great moment of salvation uh, to rescue Jesus from the grave. So that's the first reason. Uh, secondly, uh, we need to remember that, uh, that even legitimate curses are not to be trifled with, right? We need to be very careful that we are not the ones who are in the wrong or that we're trying to, to offer a curse about something that doesn't really matter, right? And, and so here again, uh, the book of Psalms is a great teacher on this principle. Uh, we have David uh, teaching us to kind of take stock of ourselves before uttering a curse against someone. And again, this is a, it's more of a warning to us, right, um, to, to take justice seriously. And so here's what we read at the beginning of Psalm 7. Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. So David's in, he's in a bit of trouble, right? But listen to what he says here. Lord, my God, if I have done this, right? and if there is guilt on my hands, if, I, you know, if I'm the one who has repaid my ally with evil or without cause have robbed my foe, then let them, right? Let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Let them trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. Right, so just like Job and David, right, we must be able to plead our own innocence in a matter before we issue a curse against someone. Right? And this, this will help us right, discern between uh, illegitimate curses that we might uh, utter out of spite or, outer just, utter, or utter just out of pure vengeance, 
you know, someone cuts us off in traffic or, you know, I'm running late and every dang light is red, right? And you just get angry. You want to curse somebody, right? Those aren't legitimate curses. Um, legitimate curses, right, are those curses that take place when it's only the intervention of God that can help in a situation, right? Only God is able to bring about justice um, and deliver you from what's at hand. So we need to remember, right, to take justice seriously, and we need to remember that curses are serious, right, and they're not to be messed with. Uh, thirdly, uh, we need to remember that praying a legitimate curse against uh, an oppressor or a perpetrator of a hidden crime means that we are releasing vengeance into God's hands, right? We're, we're letting God control the outcome. And I'm going to rely on the Apostle Paul here to instruct us. I don't think I could say it any better than he does. So this is Romans chapter 12 again. So here's what Paul says. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, and he's quoting Deuteronomy here, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Right? So you do not repay evil for evil. Right? Um, you give that into God's hands. Right? It's an important warning. And I think connected to this, it, there's also a great therapeutic value to handing these things over to God. Right? They help us to voice right, places of deep anxiety uh, and deep stress. And uh, we give them over into God's hands, right? We, they're out of our control, and only God can intervene to help us. And I think this is why we find so many of them in the book of Psalms, right? This is, I think, we're well acquainted with this experience, and we're not any different than the people of Israel, you know, 2,500 years ago. And lastly, my fourth uh, point here, uh, and this brings us kind of around full circle to where we started, and it's that praying along with the Psalms um, helps us to admit that sometimes we might have some pent-up anger uh, and sometimes we might have a, a vengeful mindset. And, um, and kind of building off that third point, right, we're allowing ourselves to voice those words, um, not just to get them off our chest, um, but hopefully to help change us a little bit. So if you can remember back, I know I've quoted a lot of scripture this morning, but if you remember back to Psalm 139, Right, that phrase, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Well, let's listen to how Psalm 139 ends. Right? So here's what it says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any great grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This comes right after <laughs> it says, I hate them with pure hatred, right? So in some respects, if you're like me reading through the psalm, you might be thinking, well, uh, God doesn't have to search very far. <laughs> Look at what you just said. Uh, it sounds pretty awful, right? Um, and you might be right, right? And, and I think that's part of the point here, right? Is 
You know, these are thoughts that we have, and uh, we might pretend that we don't have them, right? But that doesn't do us any good, right? And, and so what the Psalms enable us to do, right, is lift these things up before the Lord and let the Lord do his work, right? That might be a work within us, or it might be a work where he's bringing justice against others. One of my favorite Old Testament scholars, uh, this uh, teacher, uh, Ellen Davis, so she was a professor at Duke University down in the States for a long time. Um, here's what she has to say about the Psalms. This is from her book, Getting Involved with God. Um, I really love her reflections here. So here's what she says. The Psalms give us a new possibility for prayer. They invite full disclosure. They enable us to bring into our conversation with God feelings and thoughts that most of us think we need to get rid of before God will be interested in hearing from us. The point of the shocking Psalms is not to sanctify what is shameful, for example, that sweet desire for revenge, <laughs> or to make us feel better about parts of ourselves that stand in need of change. Rather, the Psalms teach us that profound change happens always in the presence of God. And what a great insight that she offers there. Right? The Psalms, they don't baptize right, some of the uglier things that we might think or feel, but they do provide a space for change right, as we bring our full selves before God's presence. Right? And that gives us perhaps a lot of things to ponder about. So I hope that uh, today we've been able to see that there's great value in attempting to understand the ancient context of a passage of scripture or some concept or idea that we might find in scripture. Now, this isn't easy work to do. I, I did a lot of research to find all that stuff out about curses. Um, but I think the great thing is there are so many resources available for us today uh, where we can find this kind of information. Right, there's study Bibles that are geared toward providing this kind of background information. And so, uh, so this morning, uh, I hope that uh, God may continue to bless you here at the well, um, to make known to you his faithful love, his unending mercy, and his bountiful grace. Amen.